First Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 17 through 25. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross was foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and a Gentile's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Greeks and Jews, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's ask God for his help. God in heaven, would you grant us your grace now to meditate upon your precepts and have respect to all of your ways. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we need the unfolding of this truth and application of it to our heart. That we may learn to not sin against you, but to fear you, and then to walk in your ways. Assist us, we pray, by your might and power, in Jesus' name. Amen? You may be seated. There are two ideals of of fallen human thinking that run like a thread through culture from the time of the fall until the present age. Two ideals. And those two ideals are power and wisdom. Power and wisdom are the two great defining features or ideals of fallen sinful human ways of thinking. And if you just were to scan our own culture for uh, illustrations of that, we could point out a number of them. I'm not necessarily saying all of them are sinful. I'm just using the following illustrations to uh, help us understand that these are the two great defining features of fallen thought. Power and wisdom. And they are symbolized in a whole series of different ways. If you think about our national monuments, for instance, uh, you will find that many of them are characterized by the ideals of power and wisdom. One that comes to my mind is the Lincoln Memorial patterned after the Doric temples of the Greco-Roman Empire era. 36 massive columns, 37 feet high, symbolizing power and symmetry and wisdom. If you look at the prevailing religion of this country, which is therapeutic self-help pragmatism, which says that obedience to uh, common sense faith principles accesses a better life you find the symbols of power and wisdom. If you look at the prevailing uh, musical culture of our time, and again, I'm not critiquing it as much as saying that it embodies this kind of set of ideals, hip-hop culture, as it expresses these ideals of power and wisdom and jewelry and cars and cribs and sex and casual violence. Uh, We see symbolized for us the great ideals of fallen human thought. 
power and wisdom. Everywhere you will look, if you survey our culture or past cultures, you will see these two ideals running like a thread. As expressions of what fallen sinful human beings prize and value. And it's not just in culture, it's also found in the church. As the Apostle Paul uh, looks across the Corinthian situation, uh, he basically evaluates what they are committed to as it is manifest in divisions in the church to the ideals of power and wisdom. Let's look at our passage here this morning as the Apostle Paul uh, unfolds this contrast between two different ways of approaching God and thinking about religion. First of all, he contrasts in verse 17 those who preach with cleverness of speech. And then in verse 18, Paul's own message and method, the word of the cross, which is foolishness. Let's take a moment to unfold these, the context, first of all, as we work our way into the contrast that the Apostle Paul sets up. And you remember that the context has to do with the Corinthian divisions. Verses 1 through 9, we see a whole series of ways in which the Apostle Paul says the Corinthian church uh, participates in the grace of God. Eight different things that the Apostle Paul says characterize their participation in the grace of Christ. And everything we have noted, now the past two times we have looked at this book, everything that Paul says is positive. It reinforces uh, the experience of grace that the Corinthians have. Uh, but then in verse 10, he turns on a dime and he moves from law, a gospel rather to law. He says, I exhort you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree. We just read a little bit further and we begin to see the reason why the Apostle Paul brings up that command to be unified in the same mind, the same judgment. Because there are quarrels, he says in verse 11. There are quarrels among you. And the specific quarrels are found now in verse 12. Some are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. As we've already noted before, there is within the church a set of four distinct leadership groups and people are gravitating behind those leaders who are in turn following their favorite apostolic superheroes. And so there is this division, there is rivalry, there is dissension, there is a fracturing of the unity of the body of Christ in Corinth. And Paul immediately responds to that by saying, examine it by its fruit. Verse 13, he immediately responds to this idea that I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? In other words, is the influence and impact of the gospel splintering and division and fragmentation in the church? Is that the essence of what the gospel is about? He also reduces it to absurdity by saying, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or you baptized in the name of Paul. In other words, he says, you can also evaluate what you're trying to do here by dividing up among your groups. You can evaluate by what its implications are. And its implications are that if you can line up behind Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you are saying that they have now become your saviors. That you are their disciples rather than disciples of Christ. That leads Paul now immediately into this idea that he didn't baptize anybody. 
Well, he says for a few people he did. Crispus and Gaius, and then also he says, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. I don't know of any other people that I baptized. So that's his response. He said, uh, basically, I I didn't come to uh, work division among you by having you baptized in my name so that then you would say, oh, I'm a disciple of Paul. He says, what I did is I came to preach the word of God, which is what works this wonderful and marvelous unity among the people of God, their belief in the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. He said, I came to preach, not to baptize. Now, that leads us into Paul's second response, and now leads us into the contrast that Paul set up. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. He said, there's the reason why. He gives the explanation for why his ministry was one of commitment to the proclamation of the gospel, and not necessarily uh, the uh, commitment to baptism, because he says, I am sent by Christ to preach this message. Now, Paul is not denigrating the sacraments here. He's not a Gnostic. He's not one who uh, believes that they are inefficacious or useless or mere uh, symbols or ceremonies. No, Paul wouldn't do that because if you read Paul's uh, writings about the sacraments, he is uh, committed to the concept that the sacraments are a means of grace. They matter. He's not denigrating them. He just said he's accenting what he came to do, which was to preach the gospel. Now, what he says from the end of verse 17 on gets us into the message this morning. Because he clarifies what his preaching was. Not in cleverness of speech. Now, if you look at that in the original, it would literally read, Wisdom of word. Wisdom of word. In other words, the idea that the Apostle Paul is getting at here is a kind of preaching that is characterized uh, by uh, Greek philosophical categories and rhetoric. One of the most uh, identifiable features of the Greco-Roman world, particularly in Corinth, was their commitment to rhetoric. A way of explaining and defining and presenting ideas and and winning people to particular positions. And uh, the rhetoricians of that day were powerful and revered people within Greek culture. But you see, the proclamation that characterizes those kinds of people is a proclamation that revolves around these two ideals of power and wisdom. You see, it's a human ideology. It bears all the marks of fallen, sinful human thinking. Now, why does Paul say, I did not come in cleverness of speech? Is Paul now just deciding to sort of launch into a stream of consciousness about what he thinks the best kind of preaching is? No, what Paul is doing here is responding to the divisions in the church. And basically, now his second critique of these divisions in the church is that for somebody to say, I line up behind Paul, and I line up behind Apollos, and I line up behind Cephas, it's for them to say that they have borrowed the two great ideals of fallen sinful human thinking. That they are following them, they are following these ideals, and they are patterning them, the power and wisdom 
which are the great ideals of human thinking. And now Paul says those ideals are embodied in the doctrine and the teaching of these power groups within the church. And it's their commitment to those power and wisdom ideals and, that are leading the division in the church. So he's critiquing now, he's critiquing the preaching, the contents of the preaching, which are leading to this division. I hope that's clear. We'll, we'll repeat that again. But, but as he sets forth this contrast, he is saying, if you want to get past the disunity and the finger pointing and the fracturing and the division and the quarrels in the church, you have to examine your own thought patterns. Are they characterized by the great ideals of fallen world around you? Or is your thought governed and directed and shaped by the biblical revelation that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's examine the contrast between these two preaching methods and their content. Paul, now at 18 through 25, unfolds for us several principles, really, several characteristics of this wisdom of word kind of theology and preaching. And the first characteristic of this kind of preaching and thinking, he says, is that it has the appearance of wisdom. It has the appearance of wisdom and intelligence. You see, one reason why people are uh, tempted to absorb this way of thinking into following it is because it seems so effective. It bears all of the marks of what humans would say, fallen humans would say, is powerful. And we know that that's the sense of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, because he says in verse 19, quoting now from Isaiah 29, the words of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. You see, Paul is attacking here, through Isaiah 29, uh, the first characteristic of this kind of preaching and this kind of ideology is that it appears to be powerful and it appears to be intelligent. This cleverness of speech theology appears to be powerful. It appears sensible. It appears rational. It appeals to common sense. It's not the only time the Apostle Paul has to refute this kind of mentality. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, he says that the Colossians who, uh, following a heresy that has similar characteristics to it, uh, he says to them, these matters have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion. One of the matters that he's describing there is ceremonial religion. It's a religion that would really look like it made sense to the world. Externalism, ceremonies, rituals, mystery, secret knowledge. The Apostle Paul grants that they look appealing to the fallen human way of thinking. He grants that. He says they have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of power. But he goes on to critique it by saying that it is of no value to fighting against the sins of the flesh. But I want us to be aware of what characterizes non-Christian ways of thinking. It is absorbed with a message that appears to be powerful and wise. 
And that is one of the ways in which the world, with its philosophy and ideology, attempts to undermine your faith in Jesus Christ and Christian message in general. As it looks at the message and it finds it to be weak and powerless, unadorned, unattractive, devoid of the externalism and the kinds of concepts that uh, would appear to be religious, as the world would have religion. It scoffs at an invisible God and message of the gospel. And so the first characteristic of this cleverness of speech ideology is that it appears wise and intelligent. Secondly, it's of worldly origin. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 20 and 21, the last question of verse 20. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Or in verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom does not come to know God. This is another critique, another uh, dimension also of the characteristics of this wisdom of word kind of preaching. The mentality that is beginning to prevail among some of the Corinthians, and he says that it's worldly. And that's another way of saying of its origins are not divine. It's from here below. It is, uh, it is characterized by and tinged with uh, the fallenness of the world. As you, use, as you uh, search out the use of this word world throughout the New Testament, you'll see that it has a very negative uh, color to it. It's that which comes from fallenness. It, it, that's, it comes from depravity. It comes from a lack of biblical revelation. So he says it's of the world. Uh, Thirdly, he says in verse 21, another critique, but also a characteristic of this kind of thinking, is that it does not supply the knowledge of God. Verse 21 again, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, notice this, did not come to know God. You see that? It's not only characterized by the fact that its origins are in the world, but it's also characterized by the fact that you can't come to know God through it. For all of its claims to power and wisdom. You see what the Apostle Paul says, it's of no use or no advantage to coming to know God. Though it may be filled with God talk and spiritual language and mysterious kinds of ideologies, Paul still says it is of no value in coming to know God. False religion does not help anybody come to know God. That's what Paul says. A greater expression of this uh, can be found in uh, the New Testament Scriptures, in my judgment, than what John says in John's Gospel about the Jews. John chapter 1, verse 10, he says that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. When people borrow the ideals of religion from the world, it ends up in foolishness and ignorance, not the knowledge of God. And the prime example is the covenant and people of God who Jesus came to. They had confused supernatural revelation and religion with their own twisted and distorted ideas about that revelation. They had supplemented the Word of God with their own human wisdom and their commands and their practices 
and thereby replace the authority and the wisdom and the power of God's word with false religion. And the irony of them is here as they are claiming to be the people of God and who claim to wear as a badge the fact that they are the people of God, circumcised and supposedly following the law and worshipping in the temple, they were utterly blind to the Messiah who came to deliver them. In their wisdom they didn't come to know God in Jesus Christ. Instead they rejected Him. Because they were following the ideals of of the world, power, and wisdom, which is from below. It also leads to division. That's the fourth characteristic of this kind of preaching. It leads to division. Remember, that's what Paul was responding to here. Uh, These people are following the ideology of power and wisdom, and what it is leading to is factions within the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Uh, Not only is it worldly in nature and character, in terms of its origin, uh, not only does it fail to supply the knowledge of God, but it leads to division within the church. This is a fundamental characteristic of earthly, worldly wisdom. You don't have to turn there, but James uh, chapter 3 unfolds this same idea. Where James warns similarly, the church... Because it is riddled with divisions again. He warns the church in verse 14. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, uh, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. So uh, there you have a couple of uh, indicators of, of this church's problem. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now in verse 15, he goes on to unfold where these ideas come from. He says, this wisdom, the wisdom of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he says, this wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly and natural and demonic. James is referring to the same kind of ideology, the power and wisdom ideology, which is worldly in its origin. He says, this is what it produces, strife. Jealousies, angers, that's exactly what the next verse goes on to unfold for us in verse 16. He says, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists. All of that comes right out of commitment to a worldly ideology of power and wisdom. It's from below, it's not from God. It brings divisions. Paul says it's what characterizes... The problem in Corinth, you're buying into an unbiblical philosophy of reality. And finally, he says, it brings judgment. Verse 18. Not only does it not bring knowledge of God, not only does it cause division, it fifthly leads to judgment. Verse 18 says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, they're not following the word of the cross. They're following the word of wisdom. The cleverness of speech. 
And he says, if you follow that, and then you replace the message of the cross, the apostolic proclamation with this new ideology, this worldly ideology, here's what it leads to, to judgment. It says, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And that word perishing there is used in a number of places to refer to the penalty which comes to people who reject Christ and His cross. And so as you look at this false message, this false ideology which is now permeating the church, causing division, what you see is the Apostle Paul reduces it to absurdity. He says, if you follow this, it's not only harmful to the church, but it has soul-destroying consequences. There's a lot we could say about it. We want to move on to the other side of the contrast where Paul unfolds Uh, the message of the cross, but at least what we should say is that this should stand as a warning to us to have a theology which is not grounded in the Word of God. It seems to me a rather powerful proof text for the foundational principle of Protestantism, which is sola scriptura. At the moment that the church turns away and turns a deaf ear to the Word of God or adds to the Word of God human opinions and commandments and ideas, as long as it begins to absorb uh, the ideals of fallen human thinking, it always destroys the church and it always leads to very bad consequences. By setting these things in contrast, Paul is highlighting the fact that the church must follow not its own ideas, not culturally relevant ideas, but the Word of God. It's the only safe place to be. It's only safe way of thinking. A thinking that is governed by the Word of God and the Word of God Alone. And we must resist the impulse to package our message or to adorn or apply in our church life and worship uh, these dangerous principles of fallen human ideology. And we may want to do it because we reason that it would help the church grow. Uh, We may want to do it because we may be under the mistaken impression that if uh, we just packaged the Word in a way that mm, sort of met uh, sinners where they were at, that they would open their ears to the Gospel. There's all kinds of motivations and reasons why the church struggles with this. And it's not new. It's not just 21st century North American Protestant evangelical Christianity. It's as old as the church is. We must be aware of that. But the church is always battling this, 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 this problem or this temptation of wanting to add to the Word of God or conform in some way in our thinking and our practice to the wisdom of the world, then Paul says it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It may have the appearance of power and wisdom, but it's of the world. It doesn't bring us into the knowledge of God. It works division, and it finally leads to eternal condemnation if it's followed out. 
But now to that uh, uh, kind of preaching, the, the preaching which is characterized by cleverness of speech, or wisdom of word, however we call it, Paul contrasts that now to the gospel. He contrasts that now to the gospel. And uh, it's interesting, first of all, to see, by way of comparison, how this gospel looks. Uh, Verse 23, Paul is fairly honest about uh, how our gospel looks. It is apparently foolish and weak. Remember, this stands as a contrast to uh, the ideology of the world, is it wants to present a, a gospel and a way of religious thinking that is characterized by power and wisdom. And Paul says, well, we're just the opposite in the church. We're just the opposite in the church. We preach a gospel and a way of thinking about God and a way of thinking about reconciliation with God that is not characterized by power and wisdom, but is rather characterized or appears to be foolish and weak. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. The Gentiles, foolishness. To the Jews, it was weak. Remember, the Jews wanted power. They wanted to see signs. Remember when Jesus came preaching the message of the kingdom, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came unto him and said, Well, what sign will you perform? What sign will you perform to confirm your message to us? And Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But you see, they wanted something external, some uh, really powerful external confirmation from Christ that He was truly the Messiah. They were after power. And the particular kind of power that they wanted was not power in the abstract, but a particular kind of power, a political power. They wanted Jesus to be the kind of Messiah who came with a sword strapped on his thigh, who could shoot a bow and arrow better than anybody else, who was a greater general than Alexander the Great, somebody who would plot to only overthrow the Roman Empire, but institute the old Jewish Empire and Kingdom, to establish the Israelite theocracy, to bring back Israel's glory days under King David and King Solomon. That's the kind of power they were after. And Jesus said, I'm not coming with that kind of a power. I'm coming with the power of the cross. And when the Jews heard that, they they just scrambled their categories. The Jews could not conceive of, of such a theology, such an ideology, that the Son of God would be made man, that He would be born in weakness. That he would suffer and that he would die. It was a scandal. That's what Paul is saying here with this word stumbling block. It was scandalous to their way of thinking. Who would ever come up with such a a confused ideology? That salvation was about God in the flesh dying. The most symbolically accursed form of death. The death of the cross. You see, this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul rejected Christianity initially, because all he could think about was that this Messiah, this Savior, was nailed to a cross, and the law said in Deuteronomy 21-23 that whoever was hung to a cross was accursed.
You see, though the Jews themselves did not have the authority to execute criminals in the way that the Romans did, though they may have stoned a blasphemer because they couldn't use the, the kinds of power that the Roman state could, that if they did stone somebody, particularly for blasphemy or idolatry, they would hang that body on a cross after it died to symbolize the fact that that body and that person was accursed. Again, it scrambled their ideological categories now as they see that the message of the gospel is about a savior who became accursed. It's not power. It's not power to those kinds of people. That's weakness. Weakness to contemporary ways of thinking about Christianity as well. From among Christians. It seems to me, as I, as I survey a contemporary Christianity, what I continue to find is that Christianity really is about power. It is an ideology of power. As long as I follow this recipe of spiritual principles, God is going to give me blessing. God is going to empower me. God is going to enable me to rise from the depths to rags to riches. And they will have all of the symbols of earthly power. I'll never forget the sign on one of the churches uh, in the town that we lived in that had been a confessionally reformed church, changed its name, and had a new, uh, instituted new leadership, let's say, worshiping in an old, historic uh, building built by people who believed in uh, the, the principles of the Reformation as they were summarized in our creeds and confessions. And under the new leadership, the slogan and the message and the aim of this church was spelled out in what they were all about. Creating invincible, spirit-empowered servants. You see, it's about reaching into heaven. Pulling God down and using Him to make us strong and powerful. That's not the message of the Christian Gospel. It is about a crucified Savior who says to His disciples, Take up your cross and follow Me. Who promises you nothing else in this life beside forgiveness of sins and justification. Promises you really a life of suffering as you follow Him. Again, that's not billboard Christianity. You see, the message of the Christian gospel in contrast to false religion and false gospels and false Christianity is that it doesn't appear powerful at all. It appears weak. It appears foolish. It appears foolish as well. Paul says in verse 23, it's not just a stumbling block to the Jews, it's to the Gentiles' foolishness. Uh, Literally, moria. 
moronic. That's where we get our word moronic from today in English. The Gentiles heard the message of a Savior who died. And they said that's moronic. We have an example of that. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul went to Athens and he debated theology and philosophy in the Agora, where the philosophers would gather to talk about new ideas and philosophy. And after they heard out his message of Christ crucified and resurrected, they said, who is this babbler? Literally, in the original, it says, seed picker. Who is this seed picker? And the idea behind that is a scavenger-like bird swooping down on putrefying dead objects and pecking the carcass apart and feasting on the garbage like seagulls do. That's how they described his theology. Moronic. Seed picking. You see, first of all, the Christian message is not characterized by the ideals which are common to fallen human thought of power and wisdom. We have to understand that, people of God. And we have to use methods that are consistent with that in our presentation of the truth. Second of all, what characterizes this message of the cross, verse 21, is that it imparts knowledge. Paul says that the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God. And the clear implication of that is that through the wisdom of God, through the preaching of the cross, people do come to know God. You see, it's not really all that important whether it appears powerful and wise. The real issue, the most fundamental issue, the absolutely most important thing that this thing can be characterized by is that it mediates or imparts a true knowledge of God because as Jesus says, to know God is to have eternal life. You see, this is what is so disturbing about a a Christian message, a so-called Christian message or a false gospel dressing itself up in the ideology of fallen human wisdom and thinking, though it has all the externals of something that looks really, really, really cool and religious to people today. It does nothing in terms of granting and mediating a knowledge of God, which is the means of eternal life. We're blessed, people of God, to know the message of the cross in all of its apparent foolishness and weakness. Because it is the message that brings eternal life. The other thing here that Paul says is set appearances aside, verse 18. It is a powerful message. It is a powerful gospel. He says in verse 18, The word of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. 
It's foolish. But he says to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, Paul often characterizes the gospel in this way. So it kind of makes it all the more fascinating in this context here where he's willing to call it foolish and weak and despised and just doesn't match up to the ideals of the world. Uh, whenever he wants to accent the gospel in his writings, he talks about it being power. Uh, that's the first thing that he says to the Romans in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. You see that? It's power. He describes that power of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, our gospel did not come to you in words only, but it came in power and the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. And then he goes on to explain in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1 what it means that the gospel came in power. He says, you turn from idols to the true and living God. That's the power of the gospel. The only thing in this world that can destroy the grip of idolatry upon your heart is the gospel. That's it. You know, you can go to Barnes and Noble and find a whole set of books in the self-help section which, if you followed some of the principles in them, might make your life a little bit better. A little bit more organized. A little bit more savvy economically. May help you learn how to dress better. To have better manners. To understand a better way of presenting yourself. That may help you give, uh, get a better job. That may give some guidance about relationships that is useful. That's true. You could probably find all of that stuff. You could probably listen to the radio and find some uh, people on the radio who impart their ideas for the purpose of common good. And you may be able to take some things from them that are very, very helpful. We'll be honest about that. Because they're just using God's knowledge in some ways. The fact of the matter is, if that's all you have, and you end up at death merely a good person with good morals and good manners, and you got ahead, you still are an idolater, and you will be judged. I'm glad that there are many people out there who want to give some help, to help people put their lives together in a sense. But without Jesus Christ, it's meaningless. And it does nothing. The gospel is powerful. It's powerful to break the grip of idolatry. And is used by God to bring salvation. That's what he says in verse 24. To those who are called by the sovereignty of God, it is now the power of God the wisdom of God. Just a couple of things here in closing this morning then. The gospel is antithetical to the wisdom of word. 
The message of the cross is antithetical to. It is opposite to. It cannot be mingled with fallen sinful human ideology. It cannot. You cannot take Jesus and then add to Him some good insights from culture. You cannot take Jesus and add to Him Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or Kant and say, hey, we've improved Him a little bit. It's absolutely, utterly distinct ways of viewing the world. You cannot take Jesus and add to Him secular humanism and come up with something better. These ideologies are radically distinct. They cannot be joined together. If we are to be Christians, we don't follow Paul, we don't follow Apollos, we don't follow Cephas, we don't follow Aristotle, we don't follow Calvin, we don't follow the brightest minds that we can find. We follow Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The second thing that I think of here as I look at this message that Paul preaches about the foolishness of the cross and the foolishness of preaching is the mystery and the marvel of our faith. The mystery and the marvel of our faith. When you read what Paul says here as he contrasts the preaching of the cross with the preaching of the wisdom of the word you see very quickly that this is not an ideology of salvation that a man came up with. Think about that. This is not an ideology of salvation that man came up with. Think about it in its cultural context in which it emerged from. It does not rise up out of the soil of uh, Greco-Roman thinking. It, it, It cannot possibly do that. The message of the cross, the message of the Son of God becoming incarnate and dying for our sin could not have emerged from the soil of Greco-Roman culture or Judaism. Because to the Jews, the message of the cross was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it was moronic. The apostles didn't do market research and find that there was a niche out there of people who were looking for the kind of Savior who looked powerless and foolish. God used the most utterly mysterious cultural, uh, counterculturally way of reaching people and saving them that you could possibly imagine. He used a message that offended everybody who was alive. Think about that. The next time we hear people saying that we need to adapt our methods and package our message in a way that's culturally relevant, you need to realize that the gospel was the most culturally irrelevant and countercultural message and idea that you could have possibly have come up with. Why? Because God wanted to make it clear that salvation was not a human work. That the gospel did not rise up from the soil of secular humanism. Or the best of human thinking. It's the power of God. And that's the marvel of the gospel. That God can take a message that looks so weak 
and so powerless and so foolish and so despised and so countercultural and use it to be the power of God unto salvation. Reminds me of Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the same thing that Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are higher than yours. It has pleased Him to use the foolishness of preaching as the power of God unto salvation. Why does Paul bring all of this up? Because the church was infected with the false gospel, false fallen human ideology of power and wisdom religion. And he says the key for you to establish unity in the church to put an end to the divisions and the quarrels, to rest from your fighting, is to not follow the ways of the world, but to rally behind this message, this word of the cross, which is a mysterious message, which is a message that's shameful in the eyes of the world, that appears weak and foolish, that's humble and not boasting in error. It's to follow that. And as the church clings to that message of the cross, Paul says, they will be complete. They will be complete. There will be no divisions. They will agree. They will be of the same mind, the same thought. The application of our passage this morning is the same to us. If we would adorn the unity that Paul commands, it's found in this. Embrace the foolishness of the cross. Let's pray.